Utilitarianism. Utilitarianism is the name given to a philosophy that flowered and flourished in the late 18th century and has influenced our lives, whether we know it or not, ever since. In essence, it is the idea that the proper course of action in most circumstances is that which has the greatest utility for the greatest number of people. The proper course of action in most circumstances is that which brings about the greatest increase of happiness and the greatest reduction of suffering for the greatest number of people. It's a theory that has been criticized by many people for many reasons, including Karl Marx and Pope John Paul II. But it still is an idea that has common power. We find ourselves thinking in utilitarian ways without necessarily even knowing it. Judas Iscariot, at dinner in Bethany, six days before the Passover, essentially makes a utilitarian argument when he criticizes Mary for using costly perfume to anoint Jesus' feet and causing the fragrance to fill the house. Now, Mary was making, without doubt, an extravagant gift and offering, the sort of thing we do when we are governed by love. But Judas asked, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii, about a year's wages? Why was it not sold and the money given to the poor? Deprive a handful of people of this expensive experience and you could feed hundreds of people for a week or two. The greatest good, greatest reduction of suffering. The calculus of felicity, as it was called. Now, what's going on with Judas? What's going on in Judas's heart? That he needs to be critical of Mary. That he needs to suggest that what she did was wrong. Maybe he was uncomfortable with a fairly unseemly display of sexual intimacy as Mary wiped Jesus' body with ointment using her hair. And maybe, as John suggests, Judas was a thief. Maybe he just wanted more money in the coffers from which he could steal. Or maybe John was wrong, and Judas really was concerned about the plight of the poor. But whatever it was, Judas got anxious about something, and as any of us might have been when something not quite seemly or appropriate is going on and our anxiety rises, very often anxiety will land and focus, as it did for Judas, on money. Now one problem with many utilitarian arguments is they tend to quantify human value. They tend to measure happiness or suffering in economic terms. They tend to reduce us to being consumers and valuable only when we can consume. They consign us to live in a world marked by scarcity and to suggest that anything that is not quantifiable is not quite real. This utilitarian tendency is at work in our lives and times. One example, you've probably seen some of these articles around recently where, 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 where a university education it's value, is being valued and weighed in terms of the earning potential of a graduate. If you're not going to make that much money, it's not worth spending that much on university education. We're headed towards universities selling courses and people not finding them particularly valuable because they don't help you get a job or make more money. Or in another example, look at how difficult it is for the courts to find any kind of consistency in their awarding of monetary damages for pain and suffering. They're struggling 
with a kind of utilitarian notion that pain and suffering can be measured financially and therefore happiness achieved. Now, every one of us is more like Judas than we care to imagine or admit. Money occupies a lot of our thoughts one way or another. It might be out there, it might be about taxes, it might be about politics, it might be just about whether or not we've overspent, but money tends to exercise our thoughts one way or another. And if we want to be free, if we want to live without anxiety, if we want to be able to hold our heads up and look at another, any other human being in the eye without shame or fear, then we must get clear about our relationship with money. It's a fundamental spiritual task. It's probably a fundamental lifelong spiritual task. Some of you know I teach a group of students at the Candler School of Theology, students who are exploring congregational ministry. I've done this for a number of years. And uh, this year I've got a particularly bright group, and a couple of weeks ago our assignment really got the blood pumping, this one, was stewardship, administration, and budgeting. Ooh, that was... That, they, were, they were just couldn't... They, no one was late for that one. We, we, uh, but we actually had a great conversation about uh, stewardship and why anyone would do well to give money away to the church or anywhere else. And, and it, it was enlightening to notice that as our conversation went, the anxiety in the room kicked up. Well, well, I give time, and why should I give money, and I don't have enough money, and, and I'm not doing what I ought to do. And, and I kept asking why they thought I or anyone would do well to give money. And almost all of the answers were in terms of oughts and shoulds. We ought to give because first God gave to us. We ought to give because the Bible teaches the tithe. Our denominations call the tithe as the minimum standard of Christian giving, and we ought to live up to that, we said, as leaders in the church. We ought to set an example. And as we talked... Giving seemed more and more a burden and more and more an obligation and more and more something we didn't want to talk about and more and more a consequence of noblesse oblige and for most of us in that room a source of guilt because we weren't measuring up to the oughts and to the shoulds. And we said, you better get this sorted out if you're going to spend 30 years or more in congregations. You better get your relationship with money sorted out. Now, I'm among those who don't do well with oughts and shoulds. It's probably a maturity issue, but nonetheless, I, I don't do well with oughts and shoulds. And so I was intrigued to read something, uh, read about something officially called the Behavioral Insights Team, but better known as the Nudge Unit. And this is a group of academics that David Cameron's conservative government have pulled together in England uh, with quite a lot of substantial work, research behind their work, and their job is to find ways to nudge us or to get us to do things that we ought to do that are good for us, but otherwise we're not going to do. And one example was they, they, they were trying to get everyone to uh, insulate their attics. And they were virtually giving away this fiberglass information, uh, this fiberglass insulation, in order to get people to insulate their homes. It was going to reduce their electricity bills, reduce the need on power, better for the environment, etc., etc., etc. And in spite of the fact that it was basically free, lots and lots of people didn't do it. And so they started thinking about it, and they, they talked to a lot of people, and they realized that there was a major disincentive to do it if you had to clean out your attic first. 
And so they, so they, they, they started offering the service where we'll come clean out your attic and we'll take away anything that you think is junk. We'll get rid of that. And then we'll put the insulation in. Will you do it now? And, and that it increased three times as, as much when they did that. And then they did another thing and they said, we're, we're going to do this at cost. We're going to do this absolutely at cost. There's not going to be any profit involved. And they increased it five times. They found ways to, to nudge the people to do what was good for them and what they needed to be doing. And I wanted my students to figure out how to nudge me to respond to Jesus' clear teaching about giving, that giving money away and putting my trust in God for life is a habit worth nurturing and a practice worth pursuing. The practice of generosity, the spiritual practice of generosity. And as we talked, I realized that at my best, I give because generosity is a spiritual practice almost as critical as worship or other kinds of prayer, confession and praise and intercession, critical for my development as a human being. And I think that's probably true for you as well. I give in both a sustained and sustaining way through pledge commitments, but also through the more serendipitous kind of giving that is more spur of the moment, more like Mary, more like what happens when you're in love. And I give in part because I want to remember and affirm that God is trustworthy for life, even when I don't feel it. And I give because I want to be freed from that drumbeat of anxiety that tends to attach to money. And I give because it helps me remember that I'm not primarily a consumer and that my value is not that I can spend money, but my value is I'm a child child of God and I'm made by love for love. And I want to act as such. And I give because of all things giving help me, helps me remember what really matters and what really doesn't. It's not always a straight line. And it's certainly not utilitarian. It doesn't make sense to give money away. Not really. Except if we want to be free. Except if we want to learn that money, the focus of so much of our lives, is in the end just money and not really what life is about. When Judas criticizes Mary, Jesus tells him, leave her alone. He acknowledges that sometimes the utilitarian argument misses what is of true importance and ultimate worth. In no way does he deny the needs or claims of the poor, but he affirms relational giving, giving from love, giving extravagantly, giving of ourselves, because that's the way of promise and gospel and freedom, and courage, and hope. And so, why do you give? Why might you give? What would nudge you to this practice of generosity? Have you experienced the blessing of being freed from anxiety by your practice of being generous? It makes no utilitarian sense. And yet the practice of generosity, and so living generously is the only way that makes sense because it's about love and it's about freedom and it's about one piece, an important piece of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let us respond to that gospel in silence and in prayer.